Welcome to the Wealth and Wellness Podcast with me, Kaylee Boisvert. I specialize in helping people to achieve their financial goals. I have a love for all things numbers, and I am passionate about financial literacy. My goal is to spark healthy and positive conversations around wealth and investment and create a world where nobody is limited by their financial situation. But wealth is just one piece in the equation of living our best lives. So join me as we explore both wealth and wellness topics. From your net worth to your self-worth, get ready to take confident action. Hello and welcome to the Wealth and Wellness Podcast. This is Kaylee. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to this episode. Today we are talking all about a money topic. So today's topic is Investing 101. And I'm actually going to break the episode up into two parts um, for sake of time and to ensure I'm not overwhelming you (laughs) because I want investing to be something that is positive and people are interested in doing, not something that's daunting and scares you and wants you or makes you want to never invest again. So... (laughs) Let's make sure we keep it positive and we keep it in the right amount where it's a good enough, a good amount of information um, to feel like you've learned a lot and you're ready for part two next week. Um, And please do keep in mind also, this is for information purposes only. So if I use any examples or anything like that of specific stocks, it's probably just whatever comes to my head first. And it's nothing to do with um, recommending that specific company or anything like that. So this is not to be interpreted interpreted as investment advice, just for information and financial literacy purposes only. So to start us off, let's talk about investing and what exactly is investing. So investing is a method to put your money to work with the expectation that essentially it's going to increase in value and then essentially make you a profit or provide income or maybe both of those um, scenarios. So what are some examples of why we invest? Um, Well, one reason would be to outpace inflation. So it's that idea of, well, instead of letting our money, you know, sit under our mattress, um, investing or having it earn some sort of return, because as the years go by, inflation is a reality. And if we do just that put under our mattress approach, um, you know, $10 today is not going to be, it's not going to have the same purchasing power in 20 years from now. I always think of it as like at McDonald's (laughs) when you used to be able to buy like a full meal, even upsized for like five bucks. And now it is no longer $5 to buy a meal. You're definitely looking at closer to $10. So that's just inflation at work. And an example that I've, I've recognized or noticed in my own life. Not that I go to McDonald's ever. (laughs) Um, another reason we invest is targeted goals. So maybe it's an example of like myself, I have a six-year-old daughter and one reason I'm investing is saving for her post-secondary education. So I have a registered education savings plan for her set up and I'm investing within that account for her to start growing that money for when she's ready to go to university. Um, if she's going, (laughs) 
I think she will. But yes, it, it's always a gamble. Um, as well, investing for saving for our future goals. And the big one, of course, is going to be retirement. So your retirement or financial freedom goal. So that's some of the reasons why we would invest in the first place, because again, we're looking to that for that money to grow and, you know, make a profit, have income coming off of it and all those um, things happening to help, you know, meet those, those expectations that we have. So outpacing inflation for any goals we have saving for, um, you know, big future goals. So let's look at then what is savings versus investing. There is a difference between the two, and it's very important to recognize that difference. Um, so saving would be more so that you're preserving money. You're setting aside unspent money and protecting it. Um, it's probably a short-term goal, most likely. It doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, it could be that you're saving for your emergency funds. You're building um, a nice little cushion for in case anything were to happen or unplanned expenses to come up. Um, as well, a quality or what we're looking for with savings is that it's easily accessible and it's liquid. We call liquid in, in my um, industry, but for those of you who aren't in the industry, it's maybe another form of our jargon, but liquidity just means really easily accessible, that it's either you know already cash or can be converted to cash really easily, quickly. So that's savings and why you, know, you have savings. So it's definitely usually more of that short term. If you need to access it in the near term, that's why you would have money as your savings. And then, you know, Investing is something different because investing, again, is that expecting a profit. It's a, a hoping for an appreciation of your money, and it's generally more longer term in nature as well. So, you know, we don't want to get these two confused and say, okay, I'm setting aside this money for my emergency fund. Well, you know, I've seen the, the markets have been going up. Maybe I'll put that money in the markets and grow my emergency fund even more so. Not not a good idea because, um, you know, when we're when we're saving and when we're having this this cash again, it, it's for short term. You might need it at any moment in time. So if if you put it in as an investment and the markets take a turn, and again, you know, you maybe you put them in put the money in thinking, okay, markets are going up. Well, there's no guarantee that they continue on that way. So let's see, put the money in, invest it, and then a week later. Um, you know, you have a big repair on your house comes up and you need that money, but then let's say the markets, you know, took a turn and now the, your investments have gone down. Well, you have to pull that money out because you really need to do that repair in your house and it's gone down in value. So it, it's not something that you want to get the two confused, right? So we have savings and we have investing, and it is important that we kind of keep those buckets separate, um, because we wouldn't want that to ever happen. Okay, so that's saving versus investing. So let's talk about then investing in some of your investment options. So we're talking in the sense of investing now only. We're not talking about what to do with your, you know, again, that short-term emergency fund. That's a separate thing. It's savings. You're likely just having it in cash. And, you know, that's that. Okay, so separately, though, investment options. What are some options if you are looking at investing, growing your money, seeing that appreciation? Well, I like to break it up into three buckets. Um, so I see it as you have cash and equivalents, you have fixed income investments, and then you have equities. 
So I'm going to talk about each one of those separately, but that's how I kind of envision sort of the three different investment buckets that you have at your disposal, or you can utilize these investment tools. So let's talk about cash and equivalents first. And that would be as well, we're going to move kind of down the risk spectrum with these. So cash and equivalents is really no risk because it's essentially, it's cash. Um, and so we're not talking about taking a risk in, in this type of investment bucket. So it includes money in your bank account and investments that are similar to cash. It's generally a very secure investment and provides you with quick access to your money. Um, it's relatively low rates of return compared to other kinds of investments. Again, because like I said, there's that no risk element to these. So because that no risk, um, no or low risk is going to mean the equivalent of, you know, very low returns as, as well. So keep that in mind. Um, some examples could be things like a money market fund, a guaranteed investment certificate. So that would be a GIC, um, as well as like a high interest savings. We call it HESA. That's my, again, industry jargon. <laughs> you don't need to know the industry jargon, but in case we're just throwing it out there, at least you know what we mean if we say things like HESA, it's a high interest savings account. Again, it's, it's not necessarily a separate account. Um, so that's a little bit of a misnomer, but it's essentially putting your cash into um, this guaranteed investment. So it's gonna earn a higher return than it would just sitting as cash in your account. Um, for cash and equivalents, it's really important to recognize when we're looking for, you know, what is the rate of return? Well, there isn't a set rate of return and it's going to move and depend on interest rates. So depending on where interest rates are at, that is what you can expect for your cash and equivalents as far as returns. And as most of you know, we are in currently a very low interest rate environment. So what does that mean? It means that you're going to expect very low rates of return on your cash. So it's really not yielding much at all as far as how much can I earn on my cash? You know, I'm not willing to take any risk on this. Okay, what are the options for my cash? Um, it's low. It's like in the, you know, percent, one percent kind of range. If you're looking at something more like a GIC, it's going to be a little bit higher, but you're going to have to go a few years out for it to get higher. So you're going to have to look at two year, three year, four year, five year GICs just to get in the range of getting you close to like couple percent right now. So again, I don't want to quote rates because as I'm saying this, it could change as well. And then I'm, I'm giving you inaccurate information. So keep in mind though, that how this moves is going to be with interest rates. So if interest rates are really low, don't expect for these rates to be very high. Um, and of course, if you are seeing higher rates, then you want to, you know, that's that question of, well, then why is it higher? Am I taking on some sort of risk? Because there is that, you know, too good to be true scenario. And if it looks too good to be true, that's why you want to ask questions because maybe it is, right? Maybe then there is an element of risk. If you're, if you're getting offered a rate that seems um, quite a bit higher, even though we're in a low interest rate environment, um, but do keep in mind, you know, getting some sort of return on your cash. And especially because if you're thinking of, you know, money in your checking account, it's not really going to pay any interest. So if you have a checking account and you have a large sum of money in your checking account, at least making sure that's in more of like a high interest savings or something like that to be sure it's earning something because a checking account is going to pay you low or absolutely no interest on your money. Um, so something is better than nothing. Again, with rates so low right now not making much of a difference, but still something. And I also want to point out too, though, 
cash is an investment strategy. So I talked about there being these three different buckets. Well, cash can be used as the strategy for your investments and what you're trying to achieve. Um, so it's not necessarily that you only have cash if you need it accessible right away. Um, we might have cash in someone's account for you know, putting to use if markets take a turn or if markets pull back or something like that. So it can still be part of your overall investment strategy, having cash. So that's why we still kind of talk about it in terms of an investment option, even though, you know, you think of cash and you're like, how, how is that an investment? Well, um, for that, for that reason, but using it as a strategy to say, okay, you know, I'm putting this money to work. I don't want to throw it all into the market day one. I mean, I don't like to say it's, you know, timing the market is not necessarily an easy task to do, but still having some cash or having some cash available and on hand serves an investor um, when we have scenarios like the 2008 financial crisis, um, when obviously when COVID hit. So kind of around this time last year, when the markets took a big dive, again, it would be nice to have sort of that investment um category in your portfolios in those cases. So that's cash and equivalents, not very exciting. Okay. We're moving up the exciting range too. Um, so now we're talking about fixed income security. So let's talk about fixed income. Um, we use the term fixed income interchangeably with bonds. So I might say bonds or fixed income throughout this. They mean essentially the same thing in my mind. Fixed income is bond investments. So in a bond is an investment that involves lending your money to the government or a corporate borrower. And in return for lending your money, the borrower is going to pay you a fixed rate of interest at a predetermined time. And then, and then they're going to pay you back the money that you lent them at the end. So once the maturity date comes up, they then give you back your money. Um, there's, all, there's all kinds of sorts. There's all different classifications in this realm of fixed income. So there's government bonds, there's corporate bonds, um, there's mortgage-backed securities. So it is kind of a diverse range. And what that's, you know, what comes into play there is um, kind of the, the risk level as well, too. So when we look at that fixed income bond space, there's going to be different um risk levels as type as far as the type of issuers so something like a government bond um, might be a higher quality to a corporate bond especially if it's a smaller company that doesn't have as much of a um, track record and things like that because then there's more risk and the risk being that you know at the end of that term you want your money paid back in full well if there's any risk to the um the you know the continuation of business, whatever that business was that you loaned your money to, if let's say it goes out of business or has some issues, well, then there could be risk of you getting your money back at the end. So that, that's kind of that risk element there and why different issuers are going to have different risk levels. So let's just talk about an example to kind of help clarify this idea of a bond. So let's say the company is called the company's called orange. <laughs> I'm saying that because I mean I thought of Apple and so I won't give like specific stock examples, maybe. So you don't think I'm giving any recommendations. So let's say orange, the company's called orange um, and orange. They're looking to raise some money because they're doing um, a lot of expansion in their business. They're creating a new model of car, electric vehicle, let's say. Um, and they're, so they're raising money and they're doing so through issuing these bonds. So 
you like the company, um, you think it's a great company. And so they're issuing these bonds. It's a five-year bond investment and it's a 5% um, coupon attached to the bond. So let's say you, you decide, okay, I'm going to give, I'm going to invest $5,000 in this. So you give your $5,000 to orange the company, and now you are a bond holder. You have the five-year bond that earns you 5% per year. So that's your coupon. They pay you that interest over the five-year term, 5% per year. Usually they pay it in a um, semi-annual um, structure. So you get it twice a year. So it's essentially divided in half. So you're getting your coupon payment twice a year. It adds up to 5%. And then the, at the end of the five-year term, Orange gives you back your full $5,000 investment. So you have your money back um, and that's it. So you, you lent them the money for five years. They paid you 5% on that money that you lent them. And now you get your money back at the end. Great. Um, you can see then as this example, though, of some of the, the risk issues then that come up in, in what this investment is. So the risk being, well, okay, you gave them that $5,000, what if they don't pay you back at the end? What if there is um, sort of issues with the company? Um, things don't work out well. Company goes out of business. Um, you know, in, in unprecedented times like what we saw going through COVID, a lot of companies that maybe we wouldn't have expected to have financial issues were very much having those issues. So it's it's not so far fetched to think that that could happen. And again, the longer the time frame, the potential. You know, the more potential there is that could happen because the, the further out we're getting. So a five-year bond, you might say, yeah, the company seems fine and um, in a good place for the next, you know, five-year time frame. But let's say that was a 10-year bond or a 20-year bond or a 30-year bond. That's a much harder question to answer of, is this company still going to be thriving and doing well in 30 years time? So that's part of the risk too, is the time frame. So your maturity, because um, some bonds are going to be two years, five years, 10 years, again, all sorts. Um, and then that, that interest rate comes into play with bonds. So bonds have an inverse relationship with interest rates. What this means is that if interest rates go down, bond prices go up. So that would be good for a bondholder. If you're holding an investment, you want it to go up. So interest rates go down, bond prices go up. That's the inverse. Um, but the opposite of that is true. So if interest rates go up, bond prices are going to go down. And as someone holding an investment that goes down, not you know, you're not as happy to see your investment go down. And again, this only comes to play though, if you're going to actively trade that bond, if you just decide to, um, buy that, like give them your $5,000 investment. So buy that bond investment, hold it to maturity. Um, this isn't a factor that will really impact you, but if you do want to actively trade it or sell it at some point prior to the five-year maturity, then that interest rate. Um, scenario will matter to you. So if rates move during that time frame and you look to sell your investment, let's say interest rates go up, your bond prices go down, and now your investment is worth less when you're trying to sell it. Um, and the reason why this, this inverse relationship, it's kind of hard to, um, I guess, reconcile that in our minds, but the reason is this. So let's say you held that orange bond for, and you bought it at 5%. Well, if interest rates go up, that means that if any companies are coming out and issuing bonds afterwards, or even that same company, let's say they decide, oh, we didn't, you know, we need actually more money. We're going to issue some more bonds. Interest rates have moved up. So the market is going to expect more 
from a bond issuance from this company. So if they're wanting people to buy their bond, they're going to say, okay, you know, interest rates have moved up. Um, now we're issuing this bond at 7%. Well, you're still sitting there holding your 5% bond. And now they're issuing a 7% and your 5% one doesn't look as attractive anymore because there's these new 7% ones coming out. So that's the reason why that inverse relationship exists. Because in that case, rates went up. So now bond prices went down. So again, opposite is true. Let's say rates went down. So they come out next year issuing a new bond. Oh, we have to issue it at 3% because rates have gone down. Well, now your bond at 5% is looking even more attractive. So the price will go up on your bond. If you, again, if you are looking to trade it, this is. So that explains that inverse relationship between bond values and interest rates. Um, within bonds, again, there's, you know, criteria such as um, there's the government, those the corporate bonds. And there's also the ratings attached to these bonds. So there's a few rating agencies out there, but ratings are going to help you determine the quality of your bond. And it represents the credit worthiness, essentially. So again, there's a couple rating agencies and they use a little bit different rating scales. But what you're going to see most of the time is the highest quality, um, most secure type bond investments are going to be your AAA bonds. And then it just goes down from there. So then there's AA, single A, triple B, double B, single B, and kind of continue going down the alphabet. Not all the way though. They don't go, I don't think they do. <laughs> I've never seen one. You don't want one at the bottom of the alphabet. Let's just say that. So that just helps you realize the credit worthiness. And so if you don't want to take a lot of risk, you might be wanting to look for one then that is higher on that credit worthiness scale. Um, again, we went from cash to now fixed income. And I'm saying we're kind of moving down um, the risk spectrum, we're moving up the risk spectrum, sorry. So we're, we're taking on more risk as we get into these type of investments. But bonds are lower risk technically than equity, because in the idea of credit worthiness, bondholders actually rank above equity holders or shareholders. So if the company were to um, go out of business, um, have liquidity issues, default, there would be sort of an order of rankings of who gets paid out what, and bondholders would rank above the shareholders. So that's why there are they are considered you know lower risk than an equity or a stock position. Um, and then, you know, like I, I guess maybe I haven't said this, but bonds seem relatively boring. <laughs> they do to me. <laughs> so how do you access in a bond investment? Most of the time people aren't buying individual bonds in their accounts. Um, there's just not as much, um, options out there because they don't trade over the public, like the public exchange, like equities do. They're not traded over the Toronto Stock Exchange. They actually trade on the bond desk. So there's just not as much of these issues out there and available. So that's why when it comes to investing in bonds, most likely you're going to get access through an ETF. So an exchange traded fund or a mutual fund. That's how you're going to go about investing in a bond investment. And a really good example of how people are invested is, for instance, let's say in your portfolio, you hold a balanced fund. Um, what that represents or what that means is it's a balance between equity and fixed income. So balanced, and again, a balance kind of makes it sound like balance would be like half and half. It's not necessarily the case. Oftentimes it's a 60-40 mix or, um, you know, it's some version of that. So it doesn't necessarily mean 50-50%. Um, it's not completely equally balanced. But what that means is there's going to be an element of 
bond or fixed income within there. And then there's going to be an element of equity. So most often, you know, you do have some bond investments in your portfolio. And generally, you know, the asset allocation discussion is that when you're young, that's, you know, a lower representation of your overall portfolio um, on those longer time frame goals. So let's say you're in your 20s and putting away money for your retirement, you probably don't need a high exposure to bonds because you still have a very long time frame versus if you're in your you know, 60s or seven, like, let's say you're already in retirement, then, you know, bonds would be probably a lot larger percentage of your overall portfolio. So that's where bonds come into play. They are, you know, an investment vehicle that people use as well. And, and they're sort of the weight of it really depends on your time frame and where you're at with that and what your goal is. So now moving along again, the risk spectrum as well, we're kind of moving up, taking on more risk. Um, things are getting more interesting. Now let's talk about equities. So I talked about those three different buckets, cash and equivalents, fixed income or bonds, and then equities would be the third one. And equities I use interchangeably with stocks. So stocks and equities, same thing. Um, equities are another way for a company to raise money. So in the fixed income example, I talked about the company Orange um, raising some money and they did so through issuing bonds. Well, another way a company can raise money is issuing stock or shares in the company. And that is how we get equities or, or stock positions. So again, another way for a company to raise money, a publicly traded company. And when you buy securities that are equities, essentially you become a part owner of the business. So if you're buying shares in this company, um, you are a part owner of the company. You own shares in the company. Um, you may, your shares may entitle you to vote at a shareholders meeting, and you may also receive any company um, profits that the company allocates to shareholders in the form of dividends. Again, that's if they pay dividends. So um, with the may be entitled to vote, that the case of that is that not all shares are voting shares. So some companies um, issue different classes of shares, some being voting class and some being not, and some just have, you know, one all in class and that does give shareholders the right to vote, or maybe it doesn't give them the right to vote. So again, you're not necessarily always given the right to vote. It depends on their share structure. Um, and again, also you're not always paid out dividends. It would depend on the company. So as a shareholder though, if you buy a dividend paying stock, you will get dividends paid to you as the shareholder. So, you know, keep in mind for dividends, again, not all companies pay it. Does it mean the company is good or bad if it does or doesn't? No, it's just, it just depends on the company structure. And if they so choose to have a structure that pays out dividends. Um, it attracts definitely a different shareholder base because if we're talking about people you know, nearing or in retirement years, very often those people are looking for dividend paying stocks because they want their portfolios to distribute out a nice form of income for them in those retirement years. And so they are eyeing and looking for those dividend payers. Um, and it, that's not the only reason you buy a dividend payer. There's many reasons you might want to buy a dividend paying stock. If that's just an important criteria quality for you, then you can definitely look for a company that pays a dividend. 
but not all companies pay them. Again, it doesn't mean it's a bad company. It's just a different structure. If you look at companies like um, big growthier type companies like Amazon, they don't pay a dividend, um, but there's still a lot of people that buy shares of those companies. And it's because the, the growth prospects. So maybe they're buying it more so for the capital gain element, capital gain being you buy a stock at a certain price. And if it increases in value, that's your capital gain. So oftentimes people are looking for that as their criteria and maybe they don't care about the dividends. Again, it could be stage of life and they're not really too, you know, too much in, in need of the income at this point in life or something like that, or they just want to have a diverse um, diversification in their portfolio and they might have some dividend paying and some non. So all different reasons behind it, it really depends on what you're looking for and, you know, then you can decide from that point on. So dividends though, does not, you know, make or break an investment. It's just a criteria or quality that some stocks have and pay a dividend. Some don't, um, something to keep in mind with dividends is, um, again, back to that, is it too good to be true? So if a company is paying a very high dividend, um, because you can kind of see dividend paying companies, they're all different, but you get to see sort of the percentage that they're paying. So maybe there's lots of companies out there that are paying for um, maybe three to four or 5%. And you're looking at a company that's paying 10% plus, let's say. And you're like, wow, this company pays a really good dividend. Dividends are important to me. Um, I want to buy this company. Like it, it's paying a um, maybe it's a 15% dividend. Well, keep in mind that, you know, another criteria to that is, is there an element to that dividend being at risk? So if the dividend seems very high, there could be the potential that the company is going to cut their dividend at some point, because it, it goes to the question of, is that sustainable for the company to continue paying out such a high dividend? So do keep that in mind too, that dividends aren't guaranteed and the company can make changes. And if a, div if a company does cut a dividend, it generally, um, you know, it generally what comes with that is the stock price also moves in a downward direction. It just doesn't send a great signal because if a company's cutting a dividend, um, it, it brings into question, um, you know, financial issues and things like that for the company. So keep that in mind with dividends, dividend payers. Um, yeah, that's all I wanted to say, I think, about equities. Um, so now I want to briefly talk about now investment funds. So when we talked about the three different buckets, it was the cash equivalents, it was the fixed income investments, and then it was the equities or stocks. Well, now it gets into the element of, you know, how can you buy these type of investments? And, and as I alluded to in the bond example, you can buy individual bonds, but oftentimes how people are getting access to these different buckets or these investments is through buying a basket of them. And that's done through buying um, a mutual fund or an ETF, an exchange traded fund. So in these type of funds, your money is invested in a pool or your money, yeah, your money's pooled into this investment fund. And then that money is invested in a diversified combination of assets. And the funds are professionally managed in some cases, more active management, in some cases, less or no active management. And we'll chat a little bit about what I meant by that um, in a moment here. But, um, you know, ultimately this investment fund is saying, you know, I want to buy some stocks, but I don't want to have to individually choose those, for instance, or I'm just getting started investing, but 
um, at this point, I can't, you know, buy individual stocks because, you know, as I'm adding to my money, as I'm adding to my account every month, it's just not feasible to really buy individual stocks because then it's, you know, one share of this and two shares of that and whatnot. It doesn't give you the ability or the flexibility to buy a nice, well-diversified portfolio. And in those cases, um, you might want to buy an investment fund or in cases of, you know, not being able to access it the the type of investment you want in any other way. So maybe it's you live in Canada or the US and you're wanting to buy some, you know, have some global exposure. Well, it's usually much easier to just buy a mutual fund or an ETF to get that exposure on those stocks um, rather than try to tr trade it on international stocks, stock exchanges, sorry. So let's talk a little bit about mutual funds and ETFs because the two are different and there's a lot out there of information out there that, you know, talks about both. And, you know, some people think one is, you know, better or worse and whatnot. Um, I like to look at the two as just different. They have different qualities. There's, I don't like to sort of rank the two against each other because there are good options of both out there. So let's just look at them for their differences. So and the differences, as we're talking about the differences, um, you know, the differences between the two are actually blurring quite a bit together. So historically, the big differences between mutual funds and ETFs, exchange traded funds, was that mutual funds were actively managed, ETFs were very passive. Um, and so as a result of that, the actively managed mutual funds, there was a higher fee versus the passive ETFs. You know, there's less need for ongoing um, management. Maybe you don't have a team of professionals managing the money. Maybe it's more so driven by computer programs, et cetera. So again, the embedded fee would be a lot lower, but like I said, the two are blurring together and, you know, they're, they're sort of, as they do that, they start to take on qualities of each other. So it's not as easy to just say, you know, mutual funds are this and ETFs or that, but let's just look at each on its own and kind of break down some of the different, the, the pros and cons of themselves. So Mutual funds, some of the potential pros would be having that professional active management. So when you purchase a mutual fund, you know that you're getting a team of managers that are very active about the selection of stocks and how they're investing within that fund. Um, there's a low minimum investment. So usually you can start investing in a mutual fund. Again, they're, they're different for all of them, but usually it's as low as maybe $100 or $500 is your minimum investment. And then ongoing, um, you can add, I think, as low as $25 or something like that to them. So it is a very low minimum to start. And they work really well with auto contribution plans. So let's say you're adding you know, $50 a month to your investment account, well, having that set up as a, a contribution into your mutual fund, it's really easy to do because mutual funds um, are in unit sizes of like decimal places. So you can put in your full $50 and it doesn't really matter the cost of what it's trading at. You're going to get the equivalent um, mutual fund units. Um, again, because you can access them in those point decimal places of units. Um, there's good liquidity on mutual funds. So you can, you know, buy them and sell out of them at any point in time as well. Good level of diversification. So if you're looking at investing, um, but you're, you know, getting started or you don't want to have that, you know, individual stock picking element, well, you can buy a mutual fund and there's going to be, you know, 50 plus holdings within there. So you're getting that 
that diversification right off the bat. You don't necessarily need to have 10 different mutual funds to be diversified. You're getting diversification just from buying a mutual fund because it's made up of a basket of different investments. What are the potential, some of the potential, um, you know, not so great qualities or what people might think of as negative for mutual funds would be the management fees. That's a big one that's gotten a lot of attention in the last several years here. So it's that embedded fee that you're paying on a mutual fund. Again, you know, that makes sense that there is the fee that exists because like I said, it's a team of professionals. They're, in they're individually selecting. There's a lot of research going on and there's resources needed to be doing all this work. So there is, you know, reasoning behind this cost. Um, and what has happened as well is, um, you know, the, the industry, because they've had to be more fully disclosing of these embedded fees, there has been a lot of pressure downward on these fees. So the embedded fees have been moving, you know, in favor of if the investor and, and coming down in cost. So do keep that in mind that, um, you know, it's, it's that potential negative, that embedded fee. But what I like to remind people is, you know, it's come a long way. We're, we're having conversations. We're talking about the fees, which is great because it is putting a downward pressure on these fees. Um, but we have to keep in mind, you know, that we can't expect things for free. So if we do have this team of professionals actively managing, there has to be a cost associated with that. There's, it's just inevitable. So what I like to sometimes change that question is, you know, not what necessarily just get hung up on what the fee is, but asking, what am I paying for? So understanding what is the value add that they're doing for this embedded fee, and then making the decision of based on what am I paying for? Is it worth it? Are they adding enough value to justify that cost? Um, another potential negative is um, lack of direct control. So ultimately they're making the investment decision. So if they're out there buying and selling stocks, they might buy a stock that, you know, morally you don't agree with, or um, it's just not a company you like, or you're wondering why they bought this and sold that. Well, they're making the decision. So you can't necessarily, you can't go to them and say, why did you do that? Or I don't want you doing that with my money. Um, it just, it is what it is. So there's the lack of direct control. There's potential um, underperformance. So mutual funds are all benchmarked um, to an index and underperformance would mean that they are underperforming the index that they are, the, the benchmark that they are benchmarked to. So if that is happening and it's happening sort of year over year, that could be a signal then that, you know, this isn't a great investment or that maybe there is a need for change there, that you want to make a different investment choice, find a mutual fund that is outperforming their benchmark. Cause you wouldn't want to see that time and time again. It's again, if it's one or two years, or if it's the odd um, year, but they're still doing well at outperforming their benchmark, that's great to see. But if it's continued underperformance, you're better off than owning the benchmark, which is essentially you can own kind of an ETF equivalent. That is what I'm saying by that comment. Um, the potential negative as well of a fund manager leaving. So let's say it's a really great fund manager that has a great track record. And that's part of the reason why you're buying into the fund. Well, if there's turnover and they leave for another um, company or something like that, or they retire, then that's, you know, that's something you have to keep in mind with mutual funds. So let's talk about now ETFs again, just the, the pluses and minuses within themselves. So ETFs are exchange traded funds. Um, po potential positive it's real time trading. So when you buy a mutual fund, um, 
it goes through over like the fund serve system and it's sort of all done at, at the end of the day. You don't get to choose a price you're buying it at versus um, ETFs are actively traded on the stock market. So when you're buying them, you're seeing the price, the exact price that you're paying. Um, it's not just based on the closing price of the day. It's going to be the price that you buy it at because it's traded on the exchange. You're buying it during the day that the exchange, that the markets are trading. So it's that real-time trading. Um, there is a lower management fee. So again, generally in all ETFs, exchange traded funds, you're going to have a lower embedded cost because it is generally more passive. So they don't have to pay those extra fees for that active management and you know extra analysis and things like that because they're not doing that. It's more passive. Um, another positive, again, diversification, just like a mutual fund, you're getting access to a basket of different investment holdings. Um, some of the potential negatives could be cost of trading. So when you're buying ETFs, because they're traded on the exchange, there's generally a commission or trading cost that you have to attach to that. Um, there are some platforms out there that are, you know, low to no cost buys and sells, but usually you're paying something in the form like of your direct investing account, or if you're working with a financial professional when it's traded on the exchange. Um, passive also means it does move with the market. So if it's if it's very much just an index-based ETF, it will do exactly what the market does. So if the market, let's say it's a S&P 500 ETF and the S&P 500 goes down 20%, the ETF will go down 20%. Because again, there is no active management. It is just meant to do what the index does. And that is what it is doing. So no one's stepping in and, you know, selling out of these companies before it goes down or anything like that. That's not happening because it's a passive investment vehicle. So that's what passive means though. So through and through, it's going to move with its benchmark. Um, and regular contributions might not be as easy because let's say the ETF you're looking to buy is trading at $52 a share on the exchange. Well, if you're only putting in $50 a month, like I gave that example, um, into your investment account, account per month, well, you can't even buy a full share yet. So you'd have to wait two months of contributions just to buy the one share. And then, you know, you have some, some leftover at the end of the day. So it's less, it's not as easy to make those regular contributions. So again, when we look at ETFs versus mutual funds, um, I wouldn't say necessarily that they are against each other and both could have a place and it, it goes back to depending on what it is you are looking for. Okay. So keep that in mind. Now let's talk about diversification um, because I alluded it to it in some of the qualities and criteria of ETFs and mutual funds. So what is diversification? Why should we diversify? So it's that idea of not putting all your eggs in one basket. Um, and diversification is crucial for reaching those long-term goals and minimizing risk. Again, it's not a guarantee against loss. Diversification, if you say, well, my portfolio is diversified, you know, that means I'm not going to experience the ups and downs. Well, that, that still is going to happen, but it's going to be to a lesser extent because let's say you put your entire investment portfolio in one or two different stocks and um, there's company specific risk that comes out. So let's say the company comes out and says, you know, they're doing massive layoffs. Um, the profits, you know, weren't as good as they have been in the past or something like that. That would have a huge impact on your portfolio. If that was all you held in your portfolio, um, it could, it could essentially, you know, completely take out like half of your portfolio in a day or something like that versus 
if you have this diversification element, you have many different stocks in there um, or many different positions. And if one had some sort of event like that, you could still expect that, you know, not all of them would necessarily move down in the same amount or anything like that. So when we talk about diversification, what are some examples of ways you can diversify your investment portfolio? Well, you can do so through the type of investment. So let's say you're invested in some stocks and some bonds. That's a diversification um, strategy. Um, a same, so asset class, so the, the type of investments, the number of investments you're invested in. So if you're, again, in that example, if you're invested in two stocks versus you're invested in 25 stocks, that's going to look a lot different. Because if you have 25 different stock positions in your portfolio, and one has some sort of anomaly event that comes out with, you know, surprise news, well, that one piece of your portfolio might go down, but the other 24 investments aren't necessarily going to move the same way. So you're not going to have as big of an impact. Um, country of investment is another way to diversify. So Oftentimes, I'm in Canada and here in Canada, sometimes investors can get, you know, very much of a home bias where they have very heavy exposure to just Canadian based stocks in their portfolio. Well, that's not a really good way to diversify, right? We, we can diversify out of that by making sure that we have some US, some international exposure as well to your portfolio. Um, the industry or business. So again, you know, even if you have 20 holdings, if they're all in the same industry, you're not getting diversification. So let's say you have 20 different, you know, financials or companies or something like that. Well, if there's a big event that impacts all the financial companies, um, that's going to, your portfolio will still take a hit. So by industry, we mean, okay, do you have some, you know, technology stocks, some healthcare, um, some consumer discretionary. So we're, we're diversifying by the business type in the industry company size. So you can do some, um, diver diversification as well with that. Um, you don't want to probably hold a whole bunch of very small companies in your portfolio because that will put you at a lot more risk and that volatility versus owning some, you know, really big companies, some blue chip names that, that are going to give you that diversification as well. Um, and yeah, that's all I want to say for diversification. So one other, you know, when we talk about investing and what's going on with investing, the big piece of investing and why people invest is that compound interest. So it's that magic of compound interest, which is essentially your money growing. And then by not taking out that growth and keeping it invested and in the, the investment it's in, you know, the next year's growth numbers, you're growing even more on top of that growth. So your initial investment might be 5,000, but if by the end of the year, it's 5,500, and then it grows during that year, you're essentially your principal has increased. Um, so compound interest, though, we have to keep in mind that, you know, it's great when it's working for you, but it can also work against you. So an example of that would be, let's say you held a credit card and you have a balance of 5,000 on your credit card. If your interest rate is about 18%, which most credit cards are around that amount, and let's say you're only paying the minimum of 2%, um, the time it's going to take to pay it off is going to be 46 years or 553 payments to pay off that $5,000 because of compound interest working against you. And the interest paid over that time frame is going to be $13,930. So essentially you're paying more interest than your initial credit card balance at all, almost three times as much um, in just interest alone. So 
compound interest working for you, an example would be, well, what if you were saving just $75 a month? Well, over that same 46 years of when it was working against you in the credit card example, if it was working for you and you're investing that money, so you've paid off the credit card or you don't hold a balance, and instead you're putting that $75 away, 46 years, if it's um, even growing at 6%, that money is going to grow to $220,000, just over $220,000. So that's a big difference of, you know, money, seeing that compound interest growing, but also seeing what happens when it's working against you versus working for you. So we love seeing compound interest working for you. We don't love see it working. Don't like to see it working against you. Um, so that's all I want to say today. Again, I'll make this a two-parter so I do not overwhelm you. I think I've blabbed on probably enough for this episode. So thank you so much for hanging in there. Um, and I hope you return next week or you're excited and on the edge of your seat for next week's episode of Investing 101, part two. All right. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Catch you next week. Thanks. Bye. I hope you found value in this episode. And because I'm such a proponent of taking confident action, I want to pose a question to you, the listener. What is one action that you feel inspired to take after listening to today's episode? If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe and share with your friends and family. Thank you so much. And I'll catch you next time.